We are living in crazy times. Crazy times. Unprecedentedly crazy times. Did I just say we are living in crazy times? Crazy times. Unless you've been living under a rock, and sometimes I wish I lived under a rock. Uh, if you're paying attention at all, you know that we are living in crazy times. If you watch the news, if you read the news, if you listen to the news, if you're paying attention at all, it seems like collectively, culturally, we've lost our minds. We've gone insane. My mom would say, are you out of your mind? Have we lost our minds? It seems like we have. We're asked to believe, no, scratch that, we're told that we must believe the unbelievable. We're called to embrace the irrational. We're summoned to celebrate the insane. And isn't it interesting that many of the same people who are demanding these things from us are the very same kinds of people that tell us that Christianity is irrational. I'm here to tell you today that Christianity is not irrational. And I'm here to tell you today that Christianity is not irrational, dear Christians, dear friends, with the help of Acts 25 and 26. That will be our text in Acts 25 and 26, the Apostle Paul, because he's a Christian, is accused of being out of his mind. Paul, you're insane. You're crazy. You have lost your ever-loving mind, Paul, because you are a Christian and you speak things that are Christianly. And his response is, it'll take us a while to get there, but we'll get there. His response is, I am not out of my mind, but I am speaking true and rational words. Christianity, according to the Apostle Paul, and we'll see why, for good reason, is based upon truth, objective truth, and rationality. So I want to encourage you. You're being told you must believe things that are unbelievable as if it's a religion. I want you to know that Christians actually believe the believable because we're talking about the objective. We're talking about the historic. We're talking about the actual. And I want to encourage you and give you some refreshment today. You're not crazy if you're a Christian. You're actually in touch with reality and you're actually sane. Now, I've met some insane Christians. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here to defend all Christians. But Christianity, when we're talking about believing in the person and work of Jesus, is not a take it on faith because it's not based upon reality religion. It's actually take it on faith as in you trust in him because he's an objective, historic, actual person who actually did the things historically before eyewitnesses. So let's be refreshed. We're doing two chapters today. 
So I am prayed up, revved up, caffeinated up, and all the other kinds of ups, if you will. But by now, at the end of the book of Acts, things really flow together, and I think it would be, it'll suit us best if we do both chapters, because they're so interconnected, and I think it's about 50-some verses. I think we can do it, and it'll be better. We'll enjoy it more if we tackle 25 and 26 together. So that's going to be the plan, and uh, let's jump right in. Verse 1 of chapter 25, the book of Acts. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So Caesarea is on the coast. He goes some 70 miles, 75 miles uh, to Jerusalem, the Jewish capital. And uh, we know that Festus is the new governor. We know he's the new governor of the region because the very last verse, the verse just above 25.1, the last verse of chapter 24, which is t- verse 27, it says, Felix was succeeded by Festus. So Felix is now gone. The Apostle Paul had been arrested uh, for committing no crimes, but he's been in prison for some two years now. Now there's a new governor. History would tell us he's uh, more fair than the other one before, and we'll see him actually act more justly in time. So Festus, new governor of the province. Then we move on to verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. I had to insert the word again because we just saw this happen. Maybe now they're going to have a new governor and so they can get, get him to help them. And they urged him asking for a favor as you do in politics against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And I had to write in my margin again. We just saw that. Uh, so this had been plotted before. Interestingly enough, they, they, they basically went on a hunger strike. They said, we are not going to eat food until the apostle Paul is dead. Not sure how that worked out for him. It's been two years. Um, so I, I guess they broke the hunger strike, but they still are passionate, not about the truth, not about justice, but about silencing the good news preacher. Okay, He is a threat to them. So they are all about trying to have him killed. And so here we go. Verse 4 says, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. So, basically, Festus says, no, I'm not going to do what you guys want me to do, but if you'd like to come with me to Caesarea, then you're welcome to do that. Verse 6 goes on to say, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal, The Bema is what it is. Sometimes we study different word meanings. The Bema seat, right? The judgment seat where the, where the, the judgment will be made. He's there. He's in that formal place of judgment and ordered Paul to be brought. Verse seven says, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And I had to write it again, again. Here we go again, same old thing, maybe the new governor will side with us. Verse 8 says, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So, 
I am not, he's saying, I am not anti-law. I'm not an antinomian. I'm not against God's law. No way am I against God's law. Not only that, I'm not against the temple. I'm not against the Jews. I'm not against the Romans supporting the Jews and building them a temple. Uh, I'm not anti-Semitic. You could say it that way. Uh, not only that, I'm not anti-government. I'm not even anti-pagan government. And so he responds with those three things. They've been covered before. Uh, we'll see that he actually says more. It's probably an abbreviated account. Uh, and he's going to talk about resurrection in particular later. But for now, we have to see he's responding to those, that threefold kind of accusation, which is a big accusation to make. And if he were guilty of those things, it would be a big deal. But he's not guilty of any of those things. My question for you is, why is it that Christians are oftentimes accused of being, right, anti-law, anti-Jewish, anti-temple, I think we can put those together, and anti-government. Well, it kind of makes sense why that accusation is common. Uh, and here's why we would want to say that. It kind of makes sense because we as Christians do say that Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, right, Sermon on the Mount. I came to fulfill the law. So Christians, when we trust in Christ, we believe in Christ, he's fulfilled the obligations for us so that we can be accepted by God. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't judge on a curve. And it's not your good outweighs your bad. You've got to do all the right things. And none of us do. And so when you trust in Christ, he's your substitute. He's your representative. He fulfills the law's obligations for you positively but also makes atonement so we can be forgiven of our violations. And so that's why the Bible calls us to trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous, the law keeper, the law obeyer, right? That's why we trust in him to, to make propitiation, good, big, fun word, important word, atonement for our sins, like in First John. So, But you could see how people could misunderstand. Oh, you're against the law of God. Oh, actually, we're not. We think God's law is so perfect and strict that we can't meet the obligations. We've got to trust in another who actually did. And then as Christians, we say, well, now we, we do want to do what's right. We're in the family now. We want to do what's right because we know it's good for us. God is all wise. And so we want to love God and love our neighbor. And that's not anti-law. I just at least want you to understand people might mishear. Also, anti-temple. They might think we're anti-temple but we're actually pro-temple. The temple is where you go to worship God uniquely, extraordinarily. It's the means by which you formally worship God. And we're pro-temple. But Christians know that there's ultimately one mediator between God and man. So we don't need the priests. We don't need the sacrifices. We need the ultimate temple. Jesus referred to himself in such terms, for example, in John chapter 2. And so we go to Jesus. We can appreciate the past temple. It served a good purpose, anticipating, looking forward to the ultimate temple. We're pro-temple, but we're not pro-go-back-to-animal sacrifices because we have the new covenant that even the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, talk about. Read the book of Hebrews, okay? But you can see where people would misunderstand. And then finally, sometimes people think, oh, Christians are anti-government. They're anti-secular government. And maybe we can give them a little bit of a break in thinking about why we, or think, uh, being confused about why, uh, being confused about us, because we believe Jesus is the 
king of kings. He's the Messiah and Lord of lords. And so that could sound anti-government. We're not supposed to be anti-government. We're supposed to be pro-government. Read Romans chapter 13. We believe that Jesus in Acts chapter 2, when he ascends, Acts chapter 1, but Peter understands that as he is enthroned. He is ruling and reigning now. His kingdom has been, and we use, we, we, we distinguish here, it's been inaugurated. He is the king right now. He's not off his throne, we say. But we do wait for his second coming when his kingdom is consummated. And we no longer need any kind of secular government. But it's a mistake for Christians to think we don't need any now. So again, let's just give people a little bit of a break. You can see why they would be confused. But we can bring clarity. I, I, I've not made things very complicated. It's pretty straightforward. He says, I am not anti-Jewish. I am not anti-government. I am not anti-law. Nor should we be. Let's keep going. Here we go. Verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. We, I think we see it at least three times here. We saw it in the other chapter too. We like favors. Uh, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. He's a Roman representative. I don't want to go there. I've already been there. I'm safe here. Act justly where I ought to be tried. I'm a Roman citizen. This is where I ought to be tried. I want to stay right here. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. How about that? He's not asking for favors. I want justice. As a Roman citizen, give me justice. Be fair. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. It's interesting. He, he knows what's legal and what's not legal even as a Roman citizen. And he makes reference to it. It's, it's not in a threatening kind of way, but I'll just make it that way for effect. Don't you dare send me there. I'm safe here, and justice actually is good and right, and you know it. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Ah, God's providence, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to where Acts 1-8 anticipated, the ends of the earth. If we get it to Rome, actually, that, that, that's like launching point to the ends of the earth. Remember in chapter 19, the Apostle Paul, I've got to get to Rome. I need to get to Rome. And now, as God's providence would have it, he's going to get to Rome. He's going to be able to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. That was Acts 19.21. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, again, as God's providence would have it, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. I, okay, so time for some introductions. Don't be confused by all the different names. This is Herod Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa the first, <laughs> who in chapter 12 martyred James. 
no friend of Christianity. And the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who had all of the baby boys murdered in Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2. And who does this peach of a king have with him as his queen? Oh, Bernice, his sister. So we have a Jewish king, Herod, with his queen, Bernice, who is his sister. That's not very Jewish. Okay. It's not a very good look. Kind of weird. And weird isn't the right word for it. Whole history of the Herods is a, just a disaster. We won't get into it now, but quite the family line, quite the disaster zone. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. Maybe a little bit of blame shifting, though Felix was worse than Festus. Verse 15. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. I mean, if this guy's been in prison for two years plus, he must have really done some awful things that are verifiable, tangible, objective. But that's not what happened. Verse 19 says, rather, they had certain points of dispute about him with their own religion. These are Jewish matters. And about a certain Jesus. See, that's how we know he said more. And about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. I just even like the wording of it. He doesn't really understand. This is just a Jewish thing. It's not a Roman thing. So what in the world is going on here? You know, it's about this guy, Jesus, who is dead. And Paul says he's alive now. Okay, fair enough. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, again, because they're Jewish questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had a, had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. <gasps> Breathe. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, that lovely couple, came with great pomp, right? And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, so the officials, the key leaders, and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul, we're going to see Paul enchained. So you've got the mockery of a king and the queen, uh, and they're really something pomp and circumstance. And you have the representative of the king of kings and lord of lords in chains and shackles. Kind of an interesting contrast. Was brought in. Then it says in verse 24, and Festus said, King Agrippa, 
And all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Sound familiar? But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Sound familiar? And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. I said sound familiar because it sounds a lot like the way Jesus was treated. Jesus, who was only innocent, holy, righteous, and truth-speaking. Don't confuse us with the facts, though. We know what we believe. We want him dead. But here... This governor has writer's block. <laughs> and he says it seems unreasonable. Why would it seem unreasonable to send a prisoner to Caesar without any, without any charge, without any documentation? Why would that seem unreasonable? Because it's unreasonable. <laughs> it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. So, so what are we going to accuse the guy of doing wrong when we can't find anything that he's done wrong? It's not irrational to be a Christian, but it's irrational to persecute Christians for being Christians. And we see that happening here. He's going to look like the, the, the goofball of all goofballs. No, no accusation or, or a lame, dumb accusation. And as we're going to see, when Paul defends himself, he's basically going to defend himself as a Jew for believing the Jewish Bible. Well, at this point in time, Judaism is not illegal. And so that's a fail. Um, what else? Uh, oh, he's going to defend himself for preaching hope. That's going to look kind of weird on the documentation. Hmm. Okay. Are we having any fun today just working our way through this big narrative? I hope, I, I, I think it's kind of fun. Um, the drama's unfolding. It's intriguing. It's interesting. Okay, now we're at chapter 26. Can you believe we did a whole chapter like that? It's proof we, could, we should be able to get a lot more done in church. <laughs> See what happens when you don't have committees? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. All right. 26.1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. He's done that other times to, to call for silence. Doesn't seem to be the case here. Maybe it's because it's his turn to speak. Maybe it's just a first century thing you do when you're ready to speak and you're introducing your speech. But he raises his hand. It's not important. And made his defense. Here it is. Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You're Jewish, even if you're not very good at it. <laughs> right? You, you understand. You know. 
And so it's really good that I have you as my audience. I'm so glad I have this opportunity to do this before you because you know a lot of things about Judaism, even if you're not very good at practicing it. And I want you to notice as we move our way through this, and it just gets more exciting, I want you to notice what Paul doesn't do. What we won't find is the Apostle Paul defending himself based upon something that didn't really happen. Uh, he's not going to defend himself based upon some, oh, what today we might call my truth, that's not tied to history or reality. It's based entirely on feelings or subjectivity. He's not going to argue that way. He's going to, throughout the whole thing, it's about reality, reality, reality. He's basing his argumentation on reality, which is a very Christian thing to do. It's the religion unlike all other religions because the object of our faith is the historic person and work of the Lord Jesus who did what he did before eyewitnesses. So let's get on with it. Verse 4. My manner of life. He's going to start there. From my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Everybody who knows anything about me knows that I, in a sense, I'm a public person. I'm a Jew. He's going to argue I'm a Pharisee. Everybody knows I'm a Pharisee. It's no secret that I'm a Pharisee, which will mean I know a thing or two about the Bible. And I'm dead serious about the Bible. I'm this, everybody knows this about me. I'm not an unfaithful Jew. I'm not some person. In in other words, I'm not like you, right? The one he's speaking in front of. Known by all the Jews, verse five, they have known again, known and known for a long time. So it wasn't just a one-off kind of thing. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Like I said, I know a thing or two about the Bible and I'm known for being dead serious about it. Verse six, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope which sounds weird in and of itself, but we're going to see, we've already seen in the book of Acts, hope is tied with the hope of life after death. Hope is tied in the book of Acts, we've seen it already, to resurrection. And guess what Pharisees believed? In the resurrection. Because the Bible, even in the Old Testament, promises resurrection. Okay? So Paul's argument at this point in time is it makes no sense from a religious vantage point for me to be held guilty by the Jews because Jews are supposed to believe in resurrection, especially Pharisees. Everybody knows I'm a Pharisee. Everybody knows, therefore, that I would affirm what the Bible teaches because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And how about this? And for this hope, there it is again, I am accused by Jews, O king. How about this? How about verse 8? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, if he was speaking to an atheistic kind of audience, maybe he would use a different sort of approach to things than he has before. But this is, as I stand before you Jews... Given that I'm a Pharisee, I believe the Bible is true. I believe in the resurrection because the Old Testament teaches it. And so what's the problem? 
this is irrational. This doesn't make any sense. You Pharisees are against me for being a Pharisee. How Pharisaical. <laughs> right? Remember, even that reminds me, get rid of the baggage. It's, it, it, before it became a bad word, it was a good word. We see it as a bad word, so I said how pharisaical, and you all, some of you anyway, knew that that was funny. But really what he's saying is, I'm a Bible believer, and I'm on trial before supposed Bible believers for believing in the hope of resurrection. That That's just dumb. That's not just. That's not fair. That's not right. I'm offending Pharisees for being a good Pharisee. This makes no sense. Okay, next he admits that he had been opposed to Jesus. I think probably, first and foremost, he had been opposed to Jesus because Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth couldn't be the Messiah. How, that, that's, that, that doesn't seem right. How about verse 9? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing good ever came out of Nazareth, that podunk kind of town. Sort of like a... No, I'm kidding. Not first... Verse 10, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they, uh, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And verse 11 says, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to get them to speak evil about God and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I think what Paul is up to here is he's trying to show the legitimacy of his current being a Christian by saying, look, it wasn't like, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and my parents were Christians and my grandparents were Christians and my great-grandparents were Christians, or, or I'm not like somebody who, who may be like James, the half-brother of Jesus. I, maybe I'm biased. As a matter of fact, I'm so far from being biased about this Jesus person, it's not even funny. And you all know how zealous and passionate I was against the believers in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. So it's not like I had some sort of vested interest. It wasn't because I had a past history that was, you know, emotionally uh, tying me in. Uh Uh-uh, I was against it with passion, against him with passion. It wasn't just because I was raised this way or something. How about verse 12? We better keep things moving. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king. I saw, not imagined or felt, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me. Oh, make sure you see this. And those who journeyed with me, so this didn't happen a la Joseph Smith style, not to be verified. This is before witnesses. This religion, Christianity, is different from all faker religions. So, and those who journeyed with me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I'm going to stress that also for the same reason, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language or dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A saying that they would have used then that we don't use now. Maybe you Trekkies would say, resistance is futile. I had a preaching professor who said, never use Star Trek illustrations. Not enough people will get it. Well, that was a fail. I just didn't, didn't listen to my professor. I probably should. Resistance is futile. It, it's an image that's used for training animals. 
And so if you have an ox and you are an ox trainer and you've got your stick with the ball on the end of it or whatever you're going to put on the end of it, whatever ox trainers did at the time, resistance is futile. You know what? The sooner that ox says uncle and taps out (laughs) to really mess with your minds as far as mixing metaphors, (laughs) the sooner that animal just stops fighting it, the better it's going to be for everybody. Okay? Why do you kick against the goads like an oxen being trained? You know what? It would just be better for you if you stop fighting it and do what you were made to do. Do what you were made anew to do, if you will. Jesus is now going to call the Apostle Paul to himself. He's going to become a Christian to serve Christ, the one he opposed. And you know what? The sooner you stop fighting, the better it's going to be. That's the image. It's a pretty good image. And verse 15 says, And I said, Who are you, O Lord? Or excuse me, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. How about this? To whom I'm sending you to open their eyes. Let's do this part slower. It's so good to see all of these things that are true. If you believe in Jesus to open their eyes, no doubt that spiritually, because we were blind spiritually. Think Ephesians two to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and they'll be able to see and understand things then. Good things happen in the light. And from the power of Satan to God, that also happens when a person becomes a Christian. New allegiance, new power, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That also happens. So the violations against God's commandments are not held against you anymore. You're forgiven. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in my name. Paul, in other words, I'm going to send you to preach the good news. I'm going to send you to preach the gospel. And notice at the very end there, by faith in me, that's the right response to the gospel. So Paul's going to preach the truth about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And he's going to call people to trust in Christ. When you trust in Christ, when you believe in him, you receive all those glorious and wonderful and amazing benefits like forgiveness of sins, right? Now you have, you, now you're no longer a child of Satan. You're a child of God. Now you're in the light, not in the darkness. You know, all, and he could go on and on. But you say, oh, that's, that's good. That's great. One of them is rather scandalous though to, to some minds, maybe to the Jewish mind, because Paul's going to preach to the, his people, it says, and also in verse 17, to the Gentiles. And that could be rather scandalous to a prideful person. Because did you notice there toward the end of verse 18? A place among those who are sanctified. A place among those who are set apart, different, distinct. A place among those who are holy. A place among those who are the saints. All of those are synonyms describing the same thing. He's using it as a synonym for Christians. The sanctified. The holy. Positionally because of faith in him, not because of you. 
Well, the reason it's scandalous is because if they have faith in Jesus, even if they're Gentiles, if we go to verse 17, they will have a place among those who are sanctified. Now, that's, it's awesome. It's great. But, but think about it. That's saying that even Gentiles can have a place among the Abrahams, can have a place among the Davids, can have a place among the Noahs or, or the Daniels or, or, or whoever your, your, your favorite saint is. And by the way, the only way they became saints is by faith as well, by trusting in God and his promises and the gospel ultimately. This is, this is awesome. This is great if you are a Christian. How can I be among the greats? Well, remember, there's only one truly great one. His name is Jesus. But it's equal footing, equal standing, Jew and Gentile. But if you're a prideful Jewish person, and some of those Paul's talking to are, that is horrific, terrible. We've earned it. They haven't. That's delusional. But I think it's a fascinating way of describing Christians. We, we won't take the time to do it, but that same list in verses 18 and following is a good, that's a, that's a good little theological study to say, all right, what's true of Pat when he's not a Christian? Well, he's dead in his sins. There's no forgiveness. He's in the darkness. He's satanically blinded. He's not among the saints. And then because of faith in Jesus, because Jesus is the one who does the work, so we rest in him, we trust in him, that's what faith is. I have all of those great things. How could that possibly be? Because of the work of another, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, it says in Second Corinthians. Now we're in the company of the saints, the sanctified. Okay, well, we better do verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, right? They need to trust in His Son. That's verse 18 and above. They need to see themselves as sinners, as violators of God's law. They need to repent as such, and they need to turn to God by trusting in His Son, in me, Jesus says, not opposing Him. And then it goes on to say, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's an important category, to live differently, to live in a way that honors God, that honors Christ because of all of those things. Verse 21 then says, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Not because I'm a criminal, but because I said those kinds of things. Verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing. How about this? I love it. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That has been my script. I've not been deviating from the Old Testament that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I, I've, I've just been, I'm guilty before Jews. I've just been preaching what's in the Jewish scriptures. That's what I've been doing. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is what Moses himself says. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's important because it's already been cited two times in the book of Acts to refer to Jesus. Even Moses was anticipating a greater Moses, if you will. Isaiah 53 would be another important text in all of this, as it's been used in the book of Acts, describing these benefits. Also, Hosea chapter 2, we won't take the time to go there. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 9. But even the prophets talk about Gentile inclusion. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, I will say to not my people, you are my people. That's scandalous. That's scandalous to some Christians I know today that want to forever and always separate Jews and Gentiles. The exact opposite of what the Bible does. Even in Hosea, Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 9, there's a day coming when the not my people, the Gentiles, I will call my people. Huh. Yeah, when Jesus comes as the Savior of the world. All different kinds of people, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. That's Romans 9, 24, 25, and 26. We won't take the time to get into it. But it doesn't make sense for the Jews to oppose Gentile forgiveness by faith in Jesus because if you look closer, it's actually what their scriptures teach. Ultimately and in the end, let me trigger some of you, there's one people of God, not two. The dividing wall by the work of Christ, read Ephesians, is torn down. So that's important for us because sometimes we're even told today there has to be two. There's actually only one. There will be a day, read Romans 9, my, the not my people are actually called my people. How could that be? Because Jesus is the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. Okay, body of Christ. We better keep going. How about verse 24? And as he was saying these things in his defense, so mid saying, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Kind of like it, just because it's drama, right? Your great learning. So it's not you're out of your mind because you're stupid. It's not because you're not educated. He even says, your great learning is driving you out of your mind which doesn't seem to even really make a lot of sense. You're studying the Bible too much, right? Or something. But And maybe it's just he's emoting, but he knows he's not a stupid person. He's well-educated. Paul, you're crazy. Paul, you're insane. You've lost your senses. I love the response. I hope you do too. Verse 25 says, But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. <laughs> Proof the Holy Spirit's alive and well in Paul's life. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I am speaking true and rational words. Paul is arguing based upon historic events. He's arguing based upon biblical proof texts because he's being opposed by people who say they believe the Bible. He's also arguing based upon what I would call the big picture of the Old Testament 
as it unfolds the big picture narrative in anticipation of fulfillment. He knows his Bible well enough to do that. One thing you can't accuse him of being is irrational. He's building a good argument. True and rational words grounded in the historic, not in the fanciful. Christian words are both true and rational. One author said this, the gospel is grounded in public, objective, verifiable realities. It's helpful to remember that. Verse 26 says, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. I love these words in verse 26. For this has not been done in a corner. Right? It's just a great way of putting things. We are talking about history. We are talking about eyewitnesses. We are talking about objectivity. This didn't happen in my heart. This didn't happen when I was walking down some strange alleyway with no one there to verify. That's not what we're talking about. This has not been done in isolation, in secret. How many religions are based upon secret things that supposedly happen that have no verifiable objectivity? Not this one. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I know that you know. And then how about Agrippa? Let's call him Agrippa from now on. He says, here's the dodge, little levity maybe, 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian? Just with this little speech? But notice he doesn't answer the question. 29 says, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care who you are. My desire would be that you all would be like me and believe the Bible is true, not just selectively, but all of it. And that you would believe in the historic Jesus, the one who has been raised and ascended. You know what? That's my desire. However long it takes and for whoever it comes, that's my desire. But do notice he does add one more thing except for these chains. I should also be treated fairly. This is not righteous. This is not right. This is wrong. And I'm calling you out for it. Then it says, we're going to wrap this up. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. Before we're done, in light of what we've read, Consider these statements. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus grew up 
in Nazareth. Jesus ministered in Galilee. Jesus was crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was raised from the dead outside of the city of Jerusalem. This has not been done in a corner. If you are a Christian, you are not crazy. You are not insane for being a Christian. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for great times in your word where we learn things, where our hearts are stirred. Maybe our hearts are troubled. We are thankful that you use the Bible. You use your spirit. You use preachers. You use other believers to to help us, to shake us up sometimes, maybe to offend us. But at the end of the day, our great desire would be that you would use all of these things to draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself so that they might experience forgiveness, so that they might know what it means to have a Savior who claims them as his own, the one who is returning as our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.